Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're just waiting for Pastor Ed to be seated, and then we'll get started. <laughs> it's been a very busy week, hasn't it? How many of you would admit to being worn out? You look around. There are a lot of people that are worn out for a number of different reasons. Anna's not worn out. She's her same lively self. I can tell that in a moment. But just to, uh, just to mention one of the things we're rejoicing in, and that's the fact that uh, Alden Bible Camp this last week, many of you participated in that. I'm not going to read all the numbers, but I think the one that stands out, 28 children making decisions for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so we're amazed at God's grace in that. And I'll just mention one other thing. We go into our summer schedule of worship next Sunday morning. That's a week from today. That's now July. It's kind of creeping up on us unexpectedly. We've been in June for a long time, but we go into the summer schedule. That means that one corporate worship service in the morning starting at what time? Nine o'clock. Some of you are good behind me, and that's, that's great. Um, I'm going to look around at 8.15 and see who's here. Um, and I'm going to taunt you if you're here at 8.15. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for all that you have in store for us this evening. We're excited because we get to sing your praises and to worship you and to exalt you, to open your word. We're excited because we get to be with each other, uh, an opportunity for us to once again experience what it is to be part of your great family, the family of believers the one that others will look at us and know we're disciples of the Lord Jesus because of the love that we have for each other. Help us to continue to learn more and more about what that is. And tonight in particular, help us to appreciate even more you, the God who leads, the God who knows, the God who's an ever-present help in trouble. And we need that help. We thank you for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'll admit that I'm a Phillies fan. Got some more of those here? Good, okay. And I'll also uh, admit that sometimes it's um, not very happy being a Phillies fan. Sometimes they're not too great. And this is one of those years where they're not too great, but I'm still a Phillies fan. By contrast, God is always great, and we never have to hang our head and say, well, I'm really committed to God even though he, you know, he's not too great, but he's always really great. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing two songs tonight, just kind of general praise about how great God is, how amazing he is, and what he's done for us. And uh, forget about the Phillies. Think about God. Think about what he's done for you, what he's done in your life, and how he's always like that and always will be. Yeah. 
each other. If something comes to mind as to why God has shown Himself to be great on your behalf or amazing to you this last week, tell somebody else in the public congregation. Okay? Take a few minutes. Take your hymnal and turn to number 528, one of the songs that came into being during the early years of Alden Union Church, 1932. It was copyrighted, which means it probably existed a little bit before then. Um, how many of you know this song? Okay, you folks are going to have to sing loudly with me. I thought more of you would know this, Okay. Wonderful song of testimony about the Lord's care for us. I think David would have enjoyed singing this too because God watched over him in many, many ways. Let's stand and sing 528. If you want to listen the first verse, that's okay, but don't listen the second verse. Sing with us. seated. Good evening. I'm Herb Hayes. I'm vice president of the trustees. Our missionaries of the week are Toby and Sarah Shannon serving in the Andes of Peru working with handicapped people. Just listening to that song that no one cared for me like Jesus, that, that means a lot. I'm just thinking about 
Toby and Shannon working with handicapped people in a country not as civilized as ours where handicapped people are just not really thought of, but they're there working with them day in and day out with medical things and teaching them vocational stuff that they can do. Let us bow our heads and go to prayer for Toby and Shannon. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Toby and Shannon and, and the work that they're doing with the handicapped in Peru. We, we praise you for their vocational training and for the care that, that they give these people. And, and Lord, to be with the families of these people, that they can accept their members that have physical or, or mental limitations, Lord. And we just ask you to guide Toby and Shannon in all that they do. And Father, we thank you for the offerings that we are about to receive tonight, that we will use them in the manner that you want us to. In your name, amen. people said. Amen. One more hymn, perhaps not as unfamiliar as the one we just sang, but maybe. 460. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? 
460. Let's stand and sing. It's one of Fanny Crosby's most familiar songs. Let's sing it together. <laughs> Before we look to God's Word together, let's join in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who leads and the God who knows, the God who helps, the God who cares, the God who's very personal to us. And thank you that as we've done our best to exalt you thus far this evening, that we want to continue to do that by our response to your Word and by our rejoicing once again in seeing who you are. So we thank you for this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're looking at 1 Samuel 23. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12 in just a moment. It's part of a, a series on an ever-present help in trouble. That's what God is or who he is for us. And tonight it's the God who knows. Now, I've got to tell you something before we uh, go too much further, and that is that I am not a Phillies fan. I just I wanted, I wanted you to know that. I'm not a Phillies fan, but I admire those who are not fair-weather friends, who are only fans when somebody's doing well. I admire those who stick with their team. However, the good news is that I know who's going to win the World Series this year. I know that. And you'll be glad to know that it's a team from our state. The only problem with that is that I've known that for the last 36 years, every year, and it hasn't happened for every one of those 36 years, which means that if I tell you I have knowledge, you probably don't need to respect that kind of a knowledge. But tonight we're going to be looking at the God who knows, and we do respect his knowledge. And isn't it a great thing that the God who knows is also the God who leads the one that we seek guidance from. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, let me read verses 7 through 12. I know it's in the middle of a paragraph in some of your translations. In some of yours, it is not. It's the beginning of a paragraph. But verse 7, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in 
by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Now if you'll go with me over to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Verse 1 on the screen. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, although I like an ever-present help in trouble, as some of the translations say. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then it says Selah, which perhaps means think about that for just a moment. The whole earth literally or figuratively can be caving in. And God says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be your help. It doesn't matter what's going on. I'll be there for you. Well, since that's true, what difference should that be making in our lives even right now? The difference is that no matter what it is, it can't be that bad, and so we don't need to be fearful about what's going on. So the, the, the point that I'd like to make is simply this. It's a question. How do the earth, or how do the earth giving way, the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, the waters roaring and foaming, and the mountains trembling and swelling, how does that translate into your life this very evening? In other words, what are some of the troubles that you might be likely to fear if you decided you would do that instead of recognize there's an ever-present help in trouble? It may not be something similar to the pictures that we see on the screen that are reminiscent of the scripture that we just read. It could be any of a number of other kinds of troubles. To some of our missionaries, the description that we just read and what's on the screen now is something quite literal. Some of them have been through some of these natural disasters very recently, the weather-related catastrophes. Maybe to some others, what you fear is something like this. I don't love you anymore. Or maybe you're fearing this. Our sales department is looking to head in a different direction. We won't be needing you any longer. Uh, these are the kind of troubles that sometimes cause us a lot of anxiety as we maybe anticipate some of them. Or this from the doctor. The results of the MRI and the ultrasound are in. Please sit down. Or I'll make you wish you'd never been born. Or there's been a misunderstanding that isn't covered in your policy. Or that car is coming right at us. There are all kinds of troubles that are out there desirous of filling our minds and our hearts with anxiety even when they don't happen, even when we anticipate maybe some of those things happening. Good, thoughtful question. Has God ever proven to be your refuge and strength and ever-present help in your trouble? I won't throw this open to a testimony time, but if you think about that, has he ever proven to be? I can tell you he's proven it in my life over and over and over again, an ever-present help in trouble. You can think back to a whole lot of trouble. Some of you are going north to south with your heads, and I, I understand that you're, you're there. You understand exactly what's going on here. God helped David through a troubled 10-year period. And some of that trouble is here recorded for us, described in 1 Samuel 23. There was a lot of trouble. Here's the good news, but there was even more God, as there always will be. We can be encouraged as we're looking now, last week, the God who leads. 
the God who provided the guidance for David. David didn't know whether to go to Keilah or not. The Philistines were attacking the people of Keilah. They were from the tribe of Judah. That was David's tribe. But David was not in a good position to do that because he was running from Saul. David had no authority, no position. Saul was after him. The Philistines would have been after him if he'd gone to Keilah. He, he didn't know what to do, so he inquired of God, and God told him what to do. The God who leads. That was verses 1 to 6 last week. Tonight, the God who knows. And Lord willing, the next time that we meet, we might be looking at several. The God who protects, the God who strengthens and helps, the God who rescues. All these things in this chapter he does for David, all these things he continues to do for each one of us. David had seen a need. He'd felt a responsibility. He'd inquired of the Lord. He'd gotten an answer. He'd seen his men fearful of taking a dangerous assignment. He inquired of the Lord again. He received a second go-ahead attached to a promise. He then had a decision to make. He made a decision to obey what the Lord told him to do. God then gave him everything that he had promised and then a whole lot more. And now tonight, that same God who leads can lead because he knows and can lead because he's all-powerful, but the God who knows. We saw, as we read through verses 7 and 8, Saul plotting harm for David. The word got back to Saul. We're not told exactly how, but that David had gone to Keilah. Saul's reaction to us is given in verse 7. And something about his reaction immediately to me as I read through there, it didn't sit well. It was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. It just didn't sit right. Now, maybe you've done this. I know I've done this any number of times. Ever help a child find out what's wrong in a picture? It's a popular feature in children's activity books. Um, could be something like what you see on the screen right now. It, it just doesn't fit right. What's wrong with that picture? And I don't know if you can, I hope you can all see that fairly well. Charlie, can you see it? If Charlie can see it, then everybody can see it. No, I'm just trying to get you some business. If the people can't see it, look around and see who has their hands up. Um, yeah, there, there are things that at, at first glance, like looking at the uh, children's activity books, you might see something like a woman having a banana on her face where her nose should be, and you're helping the, the child to find out what's wrong with this picture. Or flowers are growing out of the top of a man's head. Or there's an alligator with sunglasses sunbathing in the middle of a New York City street. And you're asking, what's wrong with this picture? Well, in verse 7, we're given a picture of Saul, and I had to ask myself the question, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with what he's saying here? And what's wrong is, if you've been with us in our study, you understand by this point that it is very clear Saul is a madman. He's got a twisted outlook on everything right now. He's ruthless. He's determined. He's fixated on his obsession to kill David. But he sounds very pious. He acknowledges God immediately. God has given him into my hand. What's wrong with that picture here? Somebody who is living absolutely anti-God, but he can still bring God's name into the picture. It's almost a reflex. He does that. One might think if that, that's all they knew about Saul, that maybe there's something really good about him. Maybe there's something going on here that, that God is a total package with this man. But in his deranged mind right now, he's deluded himself into thinking that God now approves of cutthroat politics, murdering your rival, slaughtering a whole town, ruling by intimidation, not by justice. But certainly God doesn't act like Saul, nor does he aid and abet Saul's dark obsession. So here's what's wrong with this picture. And please listen carefully to this. Not all who talk about what God is doing are doing what God is talking about. That's a very important lesson for us to learn. And that's a very important lesson the younger you are to understand that as you go along, you're going to have a lot of people that you're going to meet. And not all of them who are talking about God are going to be talking the way that God wants to be talked about. And so we've got a situation here where a pious vocabulary does not make someone a spokesman 
for God. What makes one a spokesman for God is when somebody is clear with God's word and the authority of God's word and doesn't deviate, doesn't go to the left or to the right. Think about the cults, not the Indianapolis cults, but C-U-L-T-S. Think about the cults and think about how much the cults will talk about God. Think about how much they'll talk about God, and the longer you listen, then you begin to realize that they're talking outside the framework of this book. They're taking away or adding something to Jesus that this book does not do. And we've got to be very, very careful about that. We've even got to be very careful when we go to churches, because you know what? A lot of churches talk about God, don't they? But they talk about God sometimes without a high view of Scripture without a high view of salvation by faith and faith alone in the the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know what else you have to be careful about? You can be a student, you can be in college, and there are professors who will talk a lot about God. It may even be a religion class. It may be a class that, as you read through it, it looks like it's going to be great. There is a lot of God talk that goes on, but Beware when you get in there. Make sure that what they're saying is not the assured results of higher criticism. Make sure what they're saying is, here's what God's Word says. And here's what God's Word means. And here's how we apply it to our lives. And this is what we do. There are a lot of people that are very casual when they talk about God and they're free to do it. And Saul is an example of one of them. But Saul is in violation right now of Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And this is a way of taking the Lord's name in vain. Just to speak his name without a relationship with him. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here's some false reasoning on the part of Saul. There's an open door. I've got my enemy in my sights. Must be God's doing. I'm going to walk through that door. An open door is not the only factor in determining God's will. God certainly is not thinking like Saul. Gates and bars mean nothing to God, but here's Saul thinking that David has just painted himself into a corner. There is no escape. Look at what God has done. Now I can get my enemy. And he's so deluded at this point, he actually thinks that God is on the side of what is clearly, clearly evil. According to verse 8, Saul planned to attack. Then we have David consulting with the God who knows. David consulting with the God who knows, and we saw that as we read through verses 9 through 12. Word got to David somehow, we're not told, about Saul's intentions. That's what verse 9 tells us. What were David's first words? Bring the ephod here. Why did he say that? What was the ephod? Secret weapon? Cloaking device? Fast jet out of town? If you've been with us, you know what an ephod is. You notice on the screen, the ephod would be right in this area here, and it was a means by which the priest would be able to get what it was that God wanted the people to know, and then he would tell them himself what it was God wanted them to know. So you could describe it as a sleeveless priestly vest that contained the Urim and the Thummim. Through these, the Lord gave clear directions. So when David would say, bring the ephod here, what did that accomplish? Well, what he was saying in effect was, let's find out what God wants to do. Let's find out what God wants to do. I'm hearing these things. Saul is coming here to get us. But let's find out what God would have us to do. Because God knows, and this is going to be the God who knows, and he's going to have a consultation with him. The God who leads, once again, is also the God who knows. David turned first to the Lord in time of trouble. Verses 10 and 11, David was looking for some information from the God who knows. He had two questions. First question, will the men of Keilah surrender me into Saul's hands? Second question, will Saul come here? He'd already been told that by someone, but not someone as trustworthy as a source as the God who knows. God answered the second question first. That seems to be the logical way to begin. Saul will come. 
David repeated the first question again. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? The Lord said, they will surrender you. How do you know that? How did he know? Because he's God. Because he's the God who knows. It hadn't happened, nor would it. But he knew it would have if David continued where he was. So now David at least knew where he stood. He knew what was happening because he asked the God who knows. What does it mean when we say that God knows? What exactly does that mean? It means he's, what's the word? What's the big word? Not sovereign. He is sovereign, but that means he's in control. Omniscient. He's omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. And I like the way that it's been put by a couple of the older commentators that I keep on my shelves. Some of you may know the name William T. Evans, and maybe none of you do. But he says, God is spirit and as such has knowledge. He is a perfect spirit and as such has perfect knowledge. By omniscience is meant that God knows all things and is absolutely perfect in knowledge. Omniscient, omni, all-knowing. Another commentator puts it this way, God is infinite in knowledge. He knows himself and all other things perfectly from all eternity, whether they be actual or merely possible, whether they be past, present, or future. He knows things immediately, simultaneously, exhaustively, and truly. That's a great description of omniscience and a great description of one of the aspects, one of the characteristics or attributes of God. God knows all things actually existing. And that means he has knowledge of everything that is going on at this particular time in the entire world, everything that's going on in the lives of every one of us who are here. He knows it all. And one of the hardest things to do sometimes in preparing messages is to limit to a few verses all of the places where something is dealt with. But I'm going to list four just to remind us of something that I believe that we all know. God knows all things that are actually existing. Some of these things are, um, are, are, are great things to think about. In Job chapter 37, verse 16, Do you know the balancings of the clouds? This is God asking Job. The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Do you know these things? There are a whole list of things God was asking Job. But in particular, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. That's a lesson that Job needed to learn. And God taught him. In Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Can you imagine that? First of all, think about the creative power in making all the stars. How many stars are there? A lot. Okay. There are billions of stars in our galaxy and billions of galaxies. Think about the one who created that all. But you know what's astounding to me also? He knows them all by name. You want to do a memory test with me? I'm going to name five things and see if in five minutes you can tell me the five things again. I'm not going to do that because I won't remember what the five are. He knows the names of billions of stars and billions of galaxies. Now, that's nowhere near as powerful as creating all of that, but I don't even understand anything about that part of it. But I understand memory a little bit, and I understand how difficult it would be to know the names of the people in this church, let alone billions of stars in one galaxy, but there are billions of galaxies. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every Place. He's also omnipresent, but that contributes to his omniscience. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You understand that, that God's not just watching the bad guys? He's watching the good guys too? Whichever one you fit in, he's watching you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Kind of summarizes it. He knows everything. So God knows all things actually existing, but He knows all things possible as well. He knows what would have happened, in other words, but didn't because someone had a change of course, a change of direction, but he knows what would have happened. This is a classic example in 1 Samuel 23, the verses that we just read. He knew what would happen. He knew that Saul would come, and he knew that the people of Keilah would give David up. It didn't happen, and it wouldn't happen, but God knew that it would have if the course had stayed the same and David had remained there in Keilah thinking that these people wouldn't give him up or that Saul wouldn't come. So he knows all things that are even possible. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, the wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Why? Because God knew what would have happened had they stayed where they were for any length of time. He knows the future. And we know that. God knows the future. We look at all of the prophecies in the Scriptures, 300 or more just having to do with when Jesus came and what happened in Jesus' life, and all of the prophecies about Tyre and Sidon and the prophecies that Isaiah made, the prophecies about what would happen with the captivity, the prophecies naming Cyrus of Persia by name, a long time before he was even born and came into the picture. Prophecies all over the Scripture. It's very clear that God knows the future. But I'd like to ask if you'd turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48, please. Isaiah chapter 48. you look at verse 5, God speaking, he says, I declared them. And what them are there are the former things. He said, I announced them and then I did them. I announced them before I did them so that you would know. And then he he has a little explanation of this in verse 5. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. In other words, God is saying, I am going to take any credit away from your false gods. You're going to say, well, they're the ones who are responsible for this. But I said I was going to do it, and then I did it, and the credit is going to be where it belongs with me, not with your idols. Verse 6, you have heard, now see all this, and you will not declare it. From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known from of old. Your ear has not been opened. For I know that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel." Now, if you'll turn back just a couple of pages, probably in most Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 46. For more of the same, in verse 9, again, he's talking about the former things. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. He knows the future, and he knows the future so confidently that he uses that as a litmus test to show that he's the only true God and no other gods can do what he does. He also not only knows the future, but he knows all about us. He knows all about every one of us. He knows all about Frieda. He knows that Frida was on vacation this week, came back and spoke at a conference and then spoke at another one and is here on worship team tonight, and she's still awake. And he knows that. He knows all about Charlie. Now, I don't know all about Charlie, but I could tell you some things. So if you want to know some things about Charlie, but 
name your name. He knows everything about you and he knows everything about me. Interesting verse in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 12. Let me share the verse and then the background behind it. It's a little backwards, but for a purpose. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. How's that for a comforting thought? There is nothing that is hidden. Well, this happens to be the king of Syria wondering if he had a fifth columnist. Do you know what that is? Any history people here? Fifth columnist? It is somebody who's a, a mole on the inside working against um, maybe a, an insider spy kind of a thing. Well, this king thinks he has a mole in his inner circle. Who of us is for the king of Israel? He asks just before this verse appears. One of the servants says, none of us, Lord. None of us are working for Israel. But somehow... Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 27, But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. This is what God said to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Let's turn together to 2 Kings 19 because the context here is precious. 2 Kings chapter 19. We read verse 27, but let's pick up the story now in verse 21. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Him is Sennacherib. You can see his name all throughout the chapter, the king of Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? This is to the king, Sennacherib. Sennacherib thought that he was really special. And who have you done this with? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said with my many chariots... Now notice uh, this again for Charlie. Charlie, I, I hate to pick on you all this time, but this guy's got eye trouble. I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And now God answers this egotism. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. In other words, Sennacherib, this isn't your doing. You're fitting into my plan. You're part of the picture. You're a pawn. You think you're the king, but you're only a pawn. While their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the feed and like field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. But I know, this is when the verse comes in, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. And then God has some things to say to him that he doesn't want to hear. He knows all about us. And you know the familiar verses in Psalm 139 that are worth all of us hearing once again. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Some of you right now might be thinking in terms of troubles that you have, sorrows that you have. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you have been in tears over the last 24 hours about one thing or another. Here's something comforting about the fact that the Lord knows all about us. Psalm 56, 8. This is something that David is writing, and incidentally, he's writing this on the occasion when the Philistines are after him at Gath. We've just studied that not too long ago. The same occasion, it tells us in the inscription to the psalm. 
You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows all about those tears. He knows all about the loneliness. He knows all about the sorrow. He knows all about everything because he's the God who knows. One of the things God knows is what is best always. The encouragement is that the God who knows leads. It's a man by the name of Charlie Steinmetz. There's a picture on the screen of where Dave Pilgrim works. Not that building, though, but Ford Motor Company. He might have worked in that building. Um, it's, a, it's a long time ago. But there's a man by the name of Charlie Steinmetz who had one of the greatest minds in the field of electricity that the world has ever known. In his day, no one knew more than he. Steinmetz built the great generators for Henry Ford in his first plant in Dearborn, Michigan. That's actually a picture of that site and that building. Once everything was in place, the assembly line worked like clockwork. Thanks to the electrical genius, cars began to roll off the production line and the profits began to pour into Ford's pockets. Things ran smoothly for months. Suddenly, without warning, everything ground to a halt. Ford Motor Company went dark. One mechanic after another was unable to locate the problem, much to Ford's frustration. By the way, just for the record, Dave was not one of those mechanics at that particular time. Had he been there, it would have been a different story, I'm sure. He didn't come along till a year or two after this, this happened. They were losing a lot of money in a hurry. And finally, Mr. Ford contacted the brain behind the whole system, Mr. Steinmetz, who had set it up. Steinmetz showed up and immediately went to work. He fiddled around with some switches and a gauge or two. He tinkered with this motor and that one. He pushed a few buttons and he messed with some wires. He then threw the master switch. Lights blinked on. Engines began to whirl. Things were back to normal in a very, very short time. A few days later, Henry Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. That's a lot of money today, but that was a whole lot more money back then. Although Ford was a rich man, he couldn't believe it. Paying such an exorbitant amount of money was out of the question, especially for what appeared to be such a small amount of work. He returned the bill with a note. Charlie, isn't this bill just a little high for a few hours of tinkering around with a few wires and switches? Steinmetz rewrote the bill and sent it back. It read, for tinkering around on the motors, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990 total, $10,000. No one else had Steinmetz's knowledge. And by the way, Henry Ford paid the bill. As we open up our lives to God and allow him to minister to us, he also knows where to tinker. He knows what we need. He's recorded the instructions for us in his book. He knows how to put right what's gone wrong, to repair what's broken. He's the one who made us. He's the one who fashioned us. He's the one who is the brains behind everything that goes on in every one of our lives and all of our circles. Jesus is the great physician. He knows the right remedy for whatever ails us because he's able to diagnose the exact problem and then fix it. He is the God who knows to fully appreciate that God knows everything can affect us in a couple of different ways. If you're sitting there right now squirming a little bit and you're saying, God knows everything about me, I hope he doesn't know this and this. Yeah, he does. It can be a very sobering reality that God knows everything about all of us. And once again, it can go one of two directions. It can be an alarming thought or it can be a great comforting thought. He knows all about me, and he still loves me, and he knows that I'm doing my best. He knows that I falter. He knows that I fail, but he knows that I confess that to him. I repent of that sin. He knows that, but he also knows those who are rebelling against him, those who are willfully defiant. So that can go any one of two different ways, a great comfort or no comfort 
at all. The God who knows. Is that a comforting thought to you? I I trust that it is, is, but if it isn't, I trust that you'll do everything in your power to fix what's going wrong with his help, with his acknowledgement. And remember that the God who knows is also the God who leads. If you want to go in the right direction with the right guidance, the God who knows is also the God who leads. Let him do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, a lesson from the life of one of the Old Testament figures. You've told us that they're all there for encouragement for us and examples for us. We thank you for that. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're not only the God who leads, but you're the God who knows, and what a great combination, and the God who's all-powerful, the God who is everywhere all at once, omnipresent, and putting those things in combination, what a great comfort it is to those of us who aren't hiding from you. But for those who are trying to do that, may they realize the folly of that and make things right even this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude by singing a hymn of great confidence and reason for peace. 347, Be Still My Soul, the God that knows is on your side, and He'll order your life and provide for you. 347, let's sing all three stanzas. Heavenly Father, we ask for each one of us as we leave here and go out into this world that we would go with the confidence that we have a relationship with you, the God who knows. Help us to be salt, light, and fragrance. Help us as we go out into this world never to be content to make a living but to make a difference. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.